Well, uh, thanks for coming again today and for uh, being the church and, and for worshiping together with us. Um, if you're new or if you're back uh, from somewhere, I want to especially welcome you and say thank you uh, for, for being with us today. Uh, we've been uh, looking, today's the, f- the fourth week in a series as we sit at the feet uh, of an ancient wisdom teacher. Uh, in uh, Greek, he's called the Ecclesiastes, and Hebrew, he's called Kohelet. In English, we, we just call him by uh, the teacher. And he's been teaching us about uh, his quest for meaning in life. And he's turned to all of these things. And, and, and the main thing he talks about is that under the sun, with all that is visible and everything that we chase after, uh, his testimony thus far, as we've seen up until this point, is that all of that stuff is meaningless. It is unsuitable for helping us to find meaning and purpose and significance in this life. He's looked at uh, wisdom. He's looked at pleasures and wine and women and song and all of these things. And he's come to this one conclusion that all that stuff is meaningless under the sun. And so today he says, is it possible for me to find meaning in life through my work? And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read verses 17 through 24. I think it's, it's misprinted. I apologize. It's misprinted on your bulletin, but we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read verses 17 through, 20, uh, through 26. I think it's doubly misprinted. 17 through 26. Um, these are the words of the inspired teacher, the word of God for us today. That so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave, it, leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. Uh, Some years back, Vanity Fair magazine interviewed a popular... A musician at the time named Madonna. This was back about 1991. They interviewed Madonna and they said, uh, the, the basic point of the interview is, what makes you so successful? Why is it that you're so good at what you do? How is it that in your line of work, you can be so great? And in a nutshell, here's what she said. She said, there's this drive in me. I have an iron will inside of my heart that is constantly pushing me to be better and better and better. And I cannot stop. It says, my longing, my desperate desire, this work ethic that I have is simply because I feel that there is a screaming mediocrity in my life. 
And everything that I do in order to work is an attempt to cover up that mediocrity, that ordinariness in my life. I'll achieve some level of success and I'll feel like I'm somebody, but then that will disappear. I'll feel mediocre again and then I need to work myself into more of a frenzy and work harder and harder and harder to maintain that somebodyness in my life. He's saying, even though I knew that I was somebody, I need to constantly prove that I was still somebody. She's like, I don't know if it will ever stop in this life. You ever feel like that? Maybe you've attained a certain level at school or at work, and you've driven yourself and worked yourself into the ground to get to that place, and people recognize you as somebody. But you can't stop there. You can't rest. There's this restless yearning in you to continue to prove to yourself and to others that you're still somebody. And so you drive yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into work, into school, into what the teacher calls toil. If you're like Madonna, what would the words of the teacher say to you? He writes here, and he offers three conclusions after he, too, lived the life of Madonna, trying to find success in his work, trying to toil and find meaning and significance in life. Could he find meaning? These are the three conclusions that he comes to. The first thing is that work under the sun is meaningless because we can't find meaning in our work. That's the first thing we see. Verse 17 says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. We see verse 17, he says, I hate life. I hated life, rather. Why did he hate life? It says, because he hated work. Because all the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. It's meaningless, it's pointless. I'm chasing after the wind in order to try and find meaning in my life. Instead of saying, I hated my work, I hated my job, I hated going to school, he says, I hate life because I hate my work. Here's what he's doing. He's equating his life with his work. He's finding his, wrapping his identity, the very essence of who he is in his work, and he's saying, because I didn't like my work, I don't like life at all. And how many of us do that? We do that a lot, I think, because when we meet somebody for the first time, now we say, hey, what do you do? We place value and meaning and identity and significance on a person based on what they do or where they go to school or how high their GPA is. Don't we do that? We look at people and we're like, yeah, if they're not, if they're not as high on the social ladder as me, if their work isn't as, as quote-unquote important as mine, then we think that we're a little bit better than them. Don't we do this? This is what our culture does. This is what our, our culture propagates to us, that you are what you do. You are what you do. You are what your work is. You are what you toil for. That's who you are. And it says, that's our identity. And that's the teacher saying, is I tried to find it in that. But this goes way back, before the teacher. You remember the Tower of Babel? Isn't that why the Tower of Babel was created? All this brick and mortar and stone, they built all this stuff together. And why? It says they wanted to make a name for themselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be somebody, right? And so I work to build my business, not so that I can serve people, but so that I can make a name for myself, so that I can be somebody. And so we work and we work and we work and we work, only to realize that, like the teacher says, it's a chasing after the wind. It's, uh, last week, I met with a college student. He, he uh, came into my office. He was sharing about some uh, real difficult things going on in his life. And basically, he said, you know what? Um, 
I feel, I feel pretty bad about myself. He had prep, prepped this up by uh, sending me an email, and he listed a whole bunch of adjectives of things that he's not. He said, I'm not athletic. I'm not handsome. I'm not sociable. I'm not outgoing. I'm not naturally keen. I'm not comfortable to be around with. I don't sing well. I'm not musically talented. And on and on, he went like 12 adjectives, string of things that he's not. And he said, I could go on, but I don't want to depress you. But one thing that he was good at was that he was, had an extremely high GPA. All throughout high school, all throughout college, that's what he had. And he said, this is what gave me my worth. Even though I couldn't do anything else, even though I was a loser, I couldn't get a girlfriend to save my life. That's what he said. He said, even though I couldn't get a girlfriend, I had a GPA, and that's where I found my meaning. All throughout high school, I didn't really have to try so hard, but that's what I accumulated, this high GPA. And I felt like every time I got a test back, it was my right to tell people what I got because I was better than them. He said, I looked down on people. I exalted myself because my GPA was so much better than everybody else's. He said, all throughout high school, that's the way it was. All throughout college, that's the way it was. He said, but the reason he came into my, into my office to talk was like, he said, you know what? Um, I'm not finding the same sense of satisfaction anymore. That I feel, I feel discouraged, I feel depressed, I feel empty, and I feel despair. Because that can't satisfy me anymore. See, he had put all of his hope for meaning in life, in his schoolwork, in his toil, and he had accumulated, he 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 strove, strove, striven, strived for that, and he got it, and he still found that that's not enough to satisfy me. So what do I do now? Maybe uh, this is a whole lot like us, except he's a little bit more honest than we are. Don't we try and find our meaning and our significance in what we do in the eight to five, in either our work or in our school? That we maybe look down on other people who have a lower GPA than us because we think we're better than them? Or if they're socioeconomically on a lower pay scale, or we we, we look at people with maybe a blue-collar job and we feel like I'm better than them. Because we put our identity, we place value, we put meaning in our lives, and we attribute value in other people based on what they do. Or if, you know, I need to, I need to work, I need to work and work and work and work in order to make money so that I can, I can have some kind of status in this world. And I remember talking with someone who, who they, didn't, they didn't have a job, and they felt like, you know what, people look at me and they, they treat me differently. Even though I don't feel like I need a job, I don't feel like I need to work, but people look at me differently and they think of me as less, less of a person because they've got this job and I don't. We, we tend to attribute value with ourselves and with other people based on what we do. And we say, you know, if I don't, uh, if I, if I don't get that promotion, if I get passed over that promotion, I feel less uh, of a person than if I'd gotten that promotion. We're afraid to tell people what our real job title is because we don't make as much money as people think we do or because we don't have as glamorous a job as people think we do. Everything else in life is going poorly, but work is going good, so we feel good about ourselves. We feel good about life. That's what the teacher was doing. He's saying all that is meaningless because we can't find meaning in our work. Why? One of the the great... uh, dispensers of worldly wisdom is John Tesh. I've recently uh, gotten into a little, well, I haven't listened to him, but I hear a lot more people talking about him. And one of the things that he says is that people who work, a normal work week is 40 hours. People who work 50 hours or more a week, 
they have a 30% higher chance of getting a heart attack. Their spouses often feel abandoned, and their children have a higher uh, likelihood of, of going astray. So the, the question we wonder is, is that all worth it? Is it worth it to, to drive ourselves like that into our work so that we can find meaning and significance to have those things happen? He says, no, here's why, because we cannot find meaning in our work. That's not what work was meant to be for us. In uh, chapter 3, verse 11, we're going to talk about this next week, but the, but the teacher writes, he has set eternity in our hearts. There's this eternity-wide groove, longing, this this desire in our hearts. And the teacher's saying, we're trying to fill this eternal uh, longing and void with all of these temporary things like wisdom and work and women and pleasures and all of these things. And none of these things are satisfying. That's why he's saying it's all meaningless. Because we're trying to fill eternal voids with temporary things. And none of that is working for us. None of that worked for him and none of that's going to work for us because that's not what it was meant to be, and it's not what it was meant to do. So the first conclusion he comes to is work is meaningless under the sun because it can't give us meaning. But then he goes on, he says, there's another thing I want to say. Work is meaningless, second, because we can't enjoy the fruit of our labor. Here's what he means by that. Verse 18, he says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to die, and all that I've worked for, I've got to leave to somebody else. At the end of the day, death is a great equalizer. Mark Driscoll, a pastor out in the, in the uh, Seattle area, he says, no matter how high you go, we all end up six feet under. And that's the great equalizer. No matter how high you go in your work, climbing up the ladder of success, we all go six feet under. And he's saying, that's, for that reason, it's all meaningless because we have to leave all that stuff behind. Because when all is said and done, it's all, we're, we're all at the same place, and we can't enjoy the fruit of our labor. You ever, um, you know, for those of you who drive or those of you who've been a backseat driver as you're trying to get somewhere, maybe you're late for an appointment or late to hang out at your friend's house, and, and you're driving, and uh, you tell your, your parents to step on the gas, or you're stepping on the gas, and, and in front of you in this left lane, there's two-lane road, this left lane, there's a, in the fast lane, um, there's a a green minivan. Right? No one has a green minivan here, right? Okay, there's a green minivan going real slowly, and you're driving, you're like, come on, come on, you got to get out of the way. And so you start tailgating him so that he maybe gets the idea that he should move out of the, this left lane, but he doesn't go, and there's another car in the right lane. You can't pass him. So you're sitting there, you're like, oh, my goodness, we got to go. God, let this guy move. Let him move. So finally, he, he, he doesn't move, but the right lane clears. So you go the right lane, and you pass him. And, and, and when you pass him, you want him to know that he was in the wrong lane. So you kind of slow down so that you can stare at him and make eye contact. And then you drive past him and then you cut him off, right? You're like, finally, some freedom, open lane ahead of me. And you're driving. You're like, this is going to save me a good minute or so on my journey. And you're driving. And then here's what inevitably happens. In the distance, you see a green light. Okay, you see a stoplight. And you're driving, you're like, okay, this is good, this is good. And you're like, God, please help me to make this green light because a huge intersection, huge intersection. Green light, green light, green light. Okay, I'm getting closer. Okay, I think I'm going to make it. Even if I get to this point, you know, I'll, I'll still run it. And then it turns yellow. And then it turns red. And you're like, ah, oh, stinky. So you stop, and then you're sitting there waiting, you're waiting, waiting for this light to turn. And cross, these guys start going, and then the left turn starts going. And then right when the light turns green, on the right, uh, right lane comes this blue minivan, and they go right past you. You know that frustration that you feel? My goodness, I, no matter how fast we go, no matter how far we go, 
there's something that equalizes all this out, and all that we've worked for ends up coming to naught. That's what he's saying. He's saying that's, that's a problem with all this stuff of work is that death is the great equalizer. And we all end up in the same place and I have to leave it behind for someone who comes after me. And then verse 19, who knows if this guy's a wise or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This is meaningless, man. My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. A man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Then he must leave, it all, he, leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless. And not only is it meaningless, he said it's a great misfortune, the opposite of a fortune. This is a great misfortune because who knows, the person you leave it to could be an absolute moron and can, can totally squander everything that you've worked for. So you work your finger to the bone and then you pass it on to someone who hasn't lifted a finger. And you know what usually happens when people get something they haven't worked for? They usually squander it very easily. People who win the lottery, people who win an inheritance, they usually get all this stuff and they don't know what to do with it, so they squander it. That's why uh, oftentimes parents make children work for their allowance. They say, hey, you do something and I'll give you a dollar for it. That's why one of the best things that I could, I, you know, I talk about this all the time, but my first job was, was uh, getting four twenty-five an hour, minimum wage, but I learned the value of a dollar at that point. So whenever my parents would give me money, I wouldn't go out and, and spend it ruthlessly because I understood that it, it, it doesn't grow on trees. People who don't work for their money, people who receive things that they don't work for, it's much easier for them to squander it. And the teacher's saying, that's what easily happens. You ever work and work and work? Maybe you're on a group project, right? At school, you're working so hard, and you finish your part, and you give it over to your team, and then they start messing around, and they don't make it in time for the deadline. You all get a zero. You ever feel that frustration? Or you go in early to work and you stay late working overtime so that you can get this promotion and then all of a sudden all that credit goes to somebody else. That frustration that you feel. Say, man, forget it. This is all meaningless. That's what the teacher's saying here. Maybe he has in mind Solomon, again, the great king, who worked and built this great kingdom up and then he passed it on to his children. His children went and they squandered. They divided the kingdom and lost everything that he had worked so hard for. He said it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. You know, when I, I was in uh, high school, I took this class called uh, Gourmet Cooking. And I took it because I wanted, to get a, I wanted to get an easy A. It was a one-semester elective, two quarters. I wanted to get an easy A. And by midterm time, I had a C- minus in Gourmet Cooking. Go figure, right? So I went to the teacher, and I, I, I still remember everything about her, Ms. Bubeck. I said, Ms. Bubeck, why did I get... Why do I have a C-? minus? I knew I had a C-. minus. completely unjustified. I burnt these brownies, but... I had a C minus. I said, what, more importantly, what can I do to bring this grade up? She said, you can come in and do some extra credit. So I was like, extra credit for gourmet cooking, great. So I went in and she's, I went in for um, after school one day and I was like, okay, what do I need to do? And she had these like pots and pans. It had like been burnt and they had uh, all this like burnt black stuff caked on it, like stuff that you can't get out. And she's like, okay, you need to scrub these pots and pans until this stuff comes out. I do. There's no way on God's green earth that this stuff is going to come out because this is now part of the actual pot. She's like, you just got to scrub it. So I got my Brillo pads and whatever I could find, I sprayed it. And I was like, this is really, this is not going to do anything. So I just started scrubbing and then, you're, you know, your hands get all black because of the, the Brillo pad dirt and stuff. And so I'm scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And at the end of an hour and a half, nothing had changed. I said, Ms. Bubeck, I did the best that I can. I gave it to her and there was nothing to show for all of my work. You know, the teacher is saying, that's 
what life, what work under the sun is. We strive and we labor and we do all these things, and, and that's what it amounts to. And when he thinks about this, he says in verse 22, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Saying, I'm not only does it stink for me to do all these things at work, but here's a, here's a problem. I, I give my body to all of these things, and, and yet at night when it's time for my body to rest, my mind can't rest. I can't even sleep. It's an even greater problem. This is a confession of a workaholic. He's saying, I can't do it. Trying to find meaning in work is completely vain, futile, empty. It's a vapor. It's meaningless. Because everything that I work for, I don't even get to see the fruit of my labor. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. So what do we do? Thankfully, he tells us that there is another way that we can see things. And for the first time in Ecclesiastes, in two chapters of writing, in two chapters of experimenting, finally the teacher introduces God into the equation. It says in verse 24, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? The last thing that we see is work can have meaning when we see the hand of God in it. See, once he begins to bring God into the picture, he's saying all this stuff under the sun is meaningless. But if we see God's divine design for why we're at work and why we're at school, then all of these things can change. Instead of seeking meaning in it, we find there's a better way to do things. Remember, okay, so in the Garden of Eden, See, the last three weeks, we've hearkened back to Genesis, and that's what the teacher's trying to get us to do, is to, to go back to that place. So we go back to, to, to Genesis before sin enters the world, and God is there, and Adam is there, and he gives him a commission. He says, take care of this world, be fruitful, multiply, uh, take care of this earth, and the word that he uses is to cultivate the ground. He says, rule over the land and subdue the earth. Literally, this word he uses is, is, is to cultivate. He says, cultivate the ground. And what he's talking about here is before sin entered our world, work entered the world, and it was a joyful kind of experience. It was a happy thing that had been given. So if Adam, if Adam was, was a waiter, right, then he would never drop a plate that he brings out. And he would always be hot, and he would always be happy, and he'd, he'd never forget an order. Right? We remember one time we went to... Um, the Orlando Alehouse, a group of us, maybe like six of, six of us went out to eat, and um, there was our server was there, and his name was Joseph, and he had a beard, and he um, would take our orders without writing anything down. And so he would just kind of like look at us and memorize you. I might have said this before, but he would memorize our order and say, okay, okay. He'd look at us and try and match what we ordered with what we'd look like. Right? That's kind of like the memory tactic that you're supposed to use. So he's looking at us and saying, okay, okay. So he took all of our orders, took all of our drink orders. He went back to the kitchen. He came back. And he had someone helping him because it was a bunch of us. And he said, okay, that uh, chicken salad goes over there. And he's pointing at someone in the corner. And someone in the corner is like, no, no, that's not mine. He's like, oh, it's not yours. And he's like, okay, that goes over here. And we're all looking at each other. We're like, no one ordered chicken salad. He's like, all right, uh, well, I, I know you ordered the, the mini burgers. And so he's pointing at, like, no, I didn't order the mini burgers. Basically, he got everything wrong. And he's like, and then he said, oh, man, those people in the kitchen always get it wrong and, and mess it up. And so he blamed it on them. But if Adam was a waiter... Right? There'd be no futility, no frustration in his work. He'd always bring out the food right. 
would never forget the order. If he was a teacher, he would always, he would always teach, and, and everyone would learn, and the children would all be, be perfectly behaved. And if he was a florist, he would never destroy the flowers like I do with the orchids at my house. Everything would be beautiful and everything would be perfect. But he was a gardener. He was a cultivator. And what that word cultivate, this word cultivates comes from the same root as the word culture. In other words, here's what, here's what the purpose of work for Adam was. It was to create culture. The purpose of work then was so that in our working, in our unique giftedness, as each of us are uniquely gifted, we would create a culture a harmonious set of relationships, of interwoven relationships, so that the one who teaches would teach, so that the one who cleans floors would clean floors, so the one who, who, who uh, trims plants would trim plants, and we would all do this together. The one who delivers babies would deliver babies. The one who babysits would babysits, and we'd all have these relationships together. None of it was to try and find meaning for ourselves. It was all intensely selfless, And it was all intensely culture and kingdom building. And as everyone did what they were gifted to do, the glory of God was there revealed. He's saying that's what work is all about. And when we introduce God back into the equation, we realize that all this striving isn't for us to try and find meaning in our lives. It's not for us to try and and create a a sense of significance out of a nothingness in my life. It's so that by giving our gifts to other people and by being excellent in what we do, the glory of God is seen, culture is created, and people are blessed. That's why we are uniquely gifted to do a certain task. And it's for that reason the ancient church fathers would say, if God has called you to be a maid, then don't stoop to becoming the president of your nation. And if God has called you to be a chauffeur, then don't stoop to being a vice president. And if God has called you to be a teacher, then don't stoop to becoming a CEO. That he's uniquely gifted us so that culture could be created, that the kingdom would, build, would be built so that we would not seek meaning and significance in our own, but that we would give our lives away for the sake of other people. The problem was that Adam sinned and he fell. And so sin was introduced and a curse was brought so that toil is marked by thorns. And so we sweat and we fret whenever we go to work. It's not so easy anymore. That's why we begin to seek meaning and money and significance and status in our schoolwork and in our jobs. That's why we think about what do I want to do when I grow up and we think about what we can do to to make the most of ourselves in society so that people will look at us and say you're successful so that mom and dad can boast about us and say look what they've become. But then Galatians chapter 3 tells us that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came and didn't work for himself but gave his life away. Son of man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He became a curse for us, taking the curse by dying on the tree for us, by taking all of our sins of seeking meaning and significance in our work, seeking status and and. and and to try and find meaning in our, in our lives through our work. He took all that upon himself. And here's where we find meaning, where we substitute our sin for his win, is that he died not only for the people on top of the corporate ladder. He died not only for the people at the top of their class with their GPAs. He died for all of us. 
He died for the lowest of the low. He died for the people who don't even have a job so that we could have status, so that we could have significance, so that we could have meaning. Saying in your infinite groove that you're, no matter what kind of work you do, no matter how high your GPA can, can be, in that infinite longing, that temporary pleasure, that temporary job cannot possibly even begin to satisfy. It's not even a drop in the bucket. You drop your significance through your work into that place and you can't even hear it. It's so deep, that eternal void. And yet into that eternal void, he pours his eternal love and he pours his eternal significance and he pours eternal meaning and he says, I, God of gods, light of light, the the only one who could ever possibly give meaning, the only one big enough to do that has poured meaning, infinite meaning into your infinite existence and I give you what you can never find on your own through work, through wisdom, through pleasure, through anything else. So that when I give you meaning and you can know that you're somebody, even though you thought you were a nobody, because of me you can become a somebody, now you don't look to work to give you that sense of meaning or significance or value. Say, I can be free to let my work serve other people. I can be free to let my business be a blessing to others. I can be free to know that whatever job I choose, I don't need to find significance in it. I can really do it for the sake of blessing other people and being excellent so that God can be glorified in me. I, uh, there's a college student uh, in our congregation. He says, my studies, I want to be excellent for God. I don't want to just get a good grade and get a good job. I want to be excellent. He, he disciplines his life so that he sleeps at 10. He wakes up at 5 o'clock every morning so that he could spend the first hour of his day in prayer and in the word so that he can devote his day to God. And then every moment of his day, he seeks to live in honoring God. And that's what it means to honor God with your studies in the eight to five, to find meaning, to make much of Christ in what you do throughout the day. It says, I want to give my excellence to God so that he would be glorified because he sees the motivations. See, the outside things can be the same. We all study hard, but it's the motives that determine whether we glorify God or not. One college student can work to get a GPA of 4.0 so that he can uplift himself. Another can work hard to get a 4.0 so that he can honor and glorify God. It's about the motives that determine, that determine whether we're worshiping God with what we do. The same thing with our vocation. That as we run our store or as we, as we serve as a doctor or as we are a consultant or whatever it is that you do for your work, in our desire to be excellent so that God can be glorified, we find, we find that we can be a blessing to others. We can find the purpose for which work was given to us. There's a uh, guy named... Uh, shoot, his name slips my Tim Timmons was his name. And he, he wrote this article about in uh, 1994, he had this experience in San Francisco, driving through a toll booth. Uh, this toll plaza had 17 uh, toll booths at it. And he chose this one. And out of this one was coming this loud music. Sounded like there's a party. Sounded like a Michael Jackson concert. Mind you, this is 1984. It was a, sounded like a Michael Jackson concert. He said, as he drove up to it, the guy in the toll booth was dancing. He having a bit, great old time. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm having a party. He said, what about these other people? He's like, they didn't want to come. So he, he started talking with them, and then people behind him started honking. So he took off, but he made a mental note. He said, this guy's got something to him. I want to come back and see him again. Sure enough, a few months later, he pulled up this same toll plaza, and he saw this guy. And still music was coming out. might have been different music, but he was still dancing. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, I remember. And, and the toll booth operator said, I remember you. He said, I'm having the same party. I'm still dancing. Same party. It's like, well, what about these guys? They're still not coming to the party? And so the toll booth operator said, what do you see? And you look down here. 
And the guy's like, uh, I see toll booths. And the toll booth operator's like, you have no imagination. No imagination. Don't you see these are vertical coffins? <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, look, every morning, 8.30, these guys walk in. They're alive. They walk in. And for eight hours, they die. And then at 5.30, like Lazarus, they come walking out. They're brought back to life again. It's like, they, I don't know what their problem is. I don't know what their problem is. But me, I find, you know what? Here's what he, he, ultimately, here's what he said. He said, right now I'm a toll booth operator, but I want to be a dancer. And my bosses are paying me for this training. Right? They're training me. They're paying me for this training to be a dancer. I don't know why people think this is a boring job. I've got windows on all four sides. I've got a view of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. People from all the world over come to where I am. This is not, this is not a boring job. This is, this is exciting. This is freeing. This is, this is what I was made to do. And the interesting thing, 16 people dead at work, but one person was fully alive. The one person was fully alive. It can be the same for us as well. Let's pray. We pray, let's think about how we spend our eight to five. How do we see it? Are we seeking meaning and satisfaction and significance in that eight to five? I'll tell you, that's not enough. Eight hours a day, even 12 hours, even 15 hours a day of work is not enough to give meaning to you because eternity has been written in your heart. What do we see work to be? Is it drudgery? Is it a grind? Because when we see it the way God intended us to see it, it doesn't have to be that way. It can be freeing. It can be joyful. It can be, I am doing a service for other people so that life might be given to them, so that God might be glorified, so that people might be blessed because of what I do. Under the sun, work is meaningless. But above the sun, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord God and say, God, here's my work. I confess that I've made it into something it's not. And as we repent and believe in the gospel again, we can stand on the truth of who we are and of what school of work was meant to be. So let's take a moment to respond to his word in prayer. Let's take a moment to respond to the Lord's initiative as we give our prayers and pray response to him. Let's take a couple moments to do that. We have meaning in this life apart from anything that can be given to us through the viewpoints of others or what others say about us or what others can place on us. Our meaning is placed in something greater, something higher, something more that we don't need to work on for Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your Son, your only Son, Jesus Christ, into our world to take the curse not only of sin, but of the effects of the curse on our work. You took that upon yourself so that we can find redemption to our work, redemption to our school, uh, to our schooling. We know that it's still hard, and by the sweat of our brow, we continue to work. But at the same time, you have given us meaning that is independent of our jobs. Even if we get fired from our work, even if we get laid off, even if we fail at what we do, 
we still have meaning because you have assigned that meaning to us and nothing will ever change that eternal truth to those who believe. So help us now not to drive ourselves into the ground trying to make a name for ourselves. And if we do stay up late, may it be because we want to honor you to learn the stuff so that you'd be glorified in us and ultimately through us. So we thank you. We love you for giving us meaning. We love you because you've loved us first. Help us to live that out. We pray these things in Jesus' name.